Macworld Podcast number 175 for November 18th, 2009. Welcome again to the Macworld Podcast. I'm guest host Philip Michael sitting in for Chris Breen. We have several hot topics to discuss in this week's episode. Mac hardware, new new iPhone rejection, tales of woe. Uh, We'll get to both segments right away. No time for news and commentary. For our first guests on the Macworld Podcast, we're joined by a gaggle of editors I'm joined by senior editor Dan Frakes. Hello, Dan. Hey, Phil. Up, up from the South Bay. Yeah. Relocated to relocated to MacWorld headquarters. Yeah. Did you did you have fun on your journey? Oh, the train is always great. Okay. Roman Loyola, our, also a senior editor, who yep. who's here every stinking day. I'm here every stinking day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did you have fun on your commute today? I, have, I feel like I need yes. to now that I've asked Dan about his. Uh, his, his trip up that I need to talk to everyone. Yes, my commute on the BART train was a quick and easy 20 minutes. Lots of fun every morning. Great. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, and finally, we have lab director James Galbraith who flew flew in from Scottsdale. <laughs> that's correct. And his arms are still tired. That's right. This is not the kind – you don't get this kind of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, camaraderie when Chris Breen is hosting the podcast. He, he does not ask the guests how their trip up was. Um, and we are here not just to talk about uh, various travel but also to talk about new, uh, new Apple hardware which has been signed, sealed and delivered and reviewed by many of the people sitting here in this room. Uh, first wanted to talk about Speedmark 6 which is the revised version of our uh, – of our, our suite of benchmarking uh, tests. And who better to talk about that than uh, uh, Jimmy, our lab director, Jimmy. That's right. Tell me what's changed about Speed Speedmark 6. What were some of the decisions that went into revising the tests? Well, the reason we needed to revise the test uh, mainly was uh, Snow Leopard. Um, each time uh, Apple releases a new cat, we also release a new version of Speedmark. So this was the uh, first update to Speedmark in, in how many years? Two since ten five shipped. Well, yeah, a couple of, two and a half years. Two and a half years. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so we the biggest changes I guess are uh, that this as Snow Leopard uh, we're run only on Intel hardware and. Um, uh, we've and we've revised uh, a lot of the tests. Some of the tests were getting a little old and uh, almost unstop watchable because uh, the tests were getting so short because the hardware was getting so fast. So we uh, we added some file size, changed the tasks. We asked our readers at MacWorld.com to uh, suggest some of their favorite apps and tasks, and uh, we took. What were some Their of the advice. what were some of the reader suggestions that made the final cut? Uh, we were asked to add something from Mathematica, which we did. Mm-hmm. Um, we were asked to add something from Aperture, which we did. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was also um, a talk about uh, wanting to add something with um, either Parallels or VMware Fusion, and we uh, we went with Parallels Five, uh, which of course. A little bit of a wrinkle, right? As we were going to uh, to publish uh, our first Speedmarks uh, six results, uh, the uh, parallels updated. So ah. we went back and tested sixteen systems in a day. That is that is amazing stuff. It um, was good. A- a- am I correct in thinking that we finally have some new games in the in the Speedmark suite? 
after all these years? Um, yes, it's a new game in the suite. Uh, we were running Call of Duty outside of Speedmark before, right? Um, because it was it required Intel hardware, um, and Speedmark Five did not. So we would oftentimes run that test outside of Speedmark. It wouldn't be calculating the score, but would show up in the benchmark chart. Now it is part of the Speedmark score. Mm-hmm. And, and just to clarify, uh, Speedmark Six can only be run on uh, on Intel-based Macs. That's correct. Okay, so all the the PowerPC Macs, which are dead uh, to us now, yeah, so to speak, they they have been getting on in years. So it's time to put them on the uh, on the ice flow and and push them out to sea and thank them for their their many years of service. And am I uh, 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 am I putting it? Succinctly enough, there. Jim? I think so. I okay. Think so. After doing all the tests, uh, what ended up being the fastest system on on Speedmark Six? And and before we get into that, what um, what's the base uh, uh, system that the score of one hundred that you're that you're judging everything against? Um, we've chose the uh, not this current MacBook, but the MacBook before the two one three gigahertz MacBook. So uh, that was the early two thousand nine. Yes. Or mid-2000. Yes. So that's our Looking 100 system. To, yeah. Roman is nodding vigorously. Mid-2009. The okay. last version of the non-unibody MacBook. White. Yes. Mac. Okay. Very good. So that's our base system. We were kind of going between the last uh, – for Speedmark 5, it was a Mac Mini. We were kind of going back and forth on which we should use and it turned out that we actually had two systems score 100. One was the Mac Mini, two gigahertz, and one was the MacBook. But we're we're using the MacBook as the uh, 100 system. Okay. So, given that, what's the um, what's the top scoring system in well, Speedmark Six? Yeah. Uh, well, probably not too surprisingly, it's the Mac Pro eight core mm-hmm. with six gigs of RAM. This was the one that was released earlier this year. Yes. Okay. It's the two two six eight core Mac Pro, and it gets a score of two hundred and five. Um, what may be a little more surprising is that uh, its quad-core sibling, the 266, scored a 203. So there's only a two-point difference there. Now, why, what, what accounts for that, uh, that performance, do you think, um, you, in, in your professional opinion? In my professional opinion, it still seems that uh, even with updated applications and everything else, uh, having fewer but faster processors – is usually more beneficial than having more slower processors hmm. in most tasks. There's a couple that that's not the case, like uh, in our Mathematica test and in our uh, Cinebench uh, Cinema 4D tests. That that will be interesting. An interesting theory, I think, to check out when the uh, when the quad core iMac uh, uh, goes under the knife, as it were. Tomorrow, we hope. Tomorrow, or as. Uh, Actually, you've, we've already tested it to those of you in podcast <laughs> land, and perhaps uh, numbers will even be up on the website uh, as we are recording this on Monday of this week, and you're listening to it at least on Wednesday. Um, hey, speaking of IMAX, that's a that's a smooth transition. Roman, yeah. So uh, you you spent a lot of time with the IMAX in the in the past few weeks. I did. I my my. Desk at work, I'm actually surrounded by IMAX, so it's a little disconcerting because there's a lot of reflection going on. Mm. And I can see. Do you have? Are are you having nightmares where IMAX are chasing you? <laughs> I don't have nightmares, which would be an yet. interesting feature, as they're quite stationary, yes. are they not? <laughs> Hopefully, they're stationary. Mm. 
you mentioned the screen. What is uh, I, 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 sure. I would guess that the question that most people have is how is it like using that uh, that twenty seven inch screen that's now on the iMac? Right. So the previous large iMac was twenty four inch. Now it's twenty seven inches, and it's also widescreen. Whereas the previous version had a sixteen by sixteen by ten ratio. Now it has sixteen by nine. Um, and it looks like an HDTV. They even the bezel around it is even different. Whereas the old bezel had a little bit of an aluminum trim around it, whereas now that's gone. And the only hint of alum, the aluminum is the front panel on the lower part. So it really does look like a TV. Whereas you know, like HDTVs have all black around it most of the time, so it gives the effect that the screen is larger than it really is. Um, it's a really good-looking screen when you look past the reflections and the glare. The color on it is brilliant. They're using uh, something called IPS, which is in-plane switching, which is supposed to help with seeing the screen at different angles. And it works really well. Um, if you're even at an extreme angle, like, say, even alongside it, and you're trying to look at the screen, you won't see a lot of or any noticeable color, color dithering or, sh- or shifting or anything like that. It looks really nice, and the brightness is very good as well. So that 27-inch, it's, it's pretty glorious. You know, I thought the 24-inch was pretty impressive before, but this, the 27-inch, it's a lot better uh, with, with that, especially with the IPS screen. Are we getting to the point where um, we're – Eventually, Apple will run out of screen real real estate beyond it being just comical, beyond it being right. like a, a Flintstones-like <laughs> uh, device that uh, tips over your entire desk when you put it on. Is yeah. 27 inches the, the sweet spot or could Apple go larger in, in future iterations now that, of course, they've just right. updated it? So let's already talk about the next version. Well, the funny thing is you know, when the 27-inch was introduced – you know, one thing that – the first thing that popped in my head was, why didn't you just go to 30 inches? Mm-hmm. And I asked them about that and, you know, they gave me – they didn't really give me a, an answer, but – which is, you know, not There's surprising actually. Yeah, any surprise. But I think, yeah, it is sort of – if you ever use the 30-inch display, it does feel a little unwieldy. You can't – you know, you, you never find a sweet spot where to sit – uh, unless you're using it day to day, and you eventually get get used to it, but the 27 inch seems to be there's a there's a faster adaptation rate. You know, you you get used to it quicker than you would with the 30 inches, just simply because it's not as big. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's a it's a lot of real estate, it's a lo- whole lot of real estate for the screen. You could use, I think, you can look at two text documents at actual size side by side. It's big enough for that. Now the screen is really the differentiating feature on this on this uh, on this model because performance-wise, correct me if I'm wrong here. Right. Jump in at any time. <laughs> uh, it seems that all of the systems are pretty uh, identical. I'm referring to both the 21.5 inch iMac and yeah. the 27 inch iMac. Yeah, they all have the 3.06 gigahertz processor, um, and in our testing. Uh, the speed mark numbers are pretty much flat. I mean, they're pretty much within one or two points of each other if they weren't equal. So uh, I think they scored like a, a 164 for the 21 and a half inch. And then we got the 27 inch actually scored. Was this right, Jim? A 162? Yes, right. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's a two point difference, and you know that's which can, is you, negligible. Which is negligible when you're talking about scores that high. So what you're really looking at then is which which size do you want? Do you want the bigger screen or the smaller screen? And there's no performance issues there at all. Does the graphics processor come into play uh, when you're looking up the the two twenty? There are a lot of numbers I'm about to spit out here, so let's see if I can spit them out in the right order. The two 21.5-inch IMAX, yay. Um, You're really dealing with a processor issue there, a graphics processor issue. Yeah, there are are two 21.5-inch models, one with the NVIDIA integrated graphics. um, Which means that it's it's sharing memory. It's sharing main memory. And then there's another one with the, an ATI uh, dedicated chip. And the NVIDIA one is slower than the ATI-based one, even though they have the same processors, C- CPU speed, the core CPU speed. Mm-hmm. The NVIDIA one had a speed mark score of 148, which is significant. That's, that's about 10%. The Call of Duty test, if I can jump in, uh, we got 20, about 22 frames per second with the NVIDIA integrated graphics and 69 frames per second when we shift to switch to the, uh, the one with the ATI dedicated memory. Yeah, so you get three times the frame rate. You also get, uh, I think, a bigger hard drive with the ATI one, and that, and, and that model is $300 more. So... You know, to me, that's that's worth it. That's worth that price difference to get that the faster frame rate and the more and more storage. So, who should be um, looking to upgrade to any of these any of these iMac models? It does. Right. It, it doesn't sound like they're that much of a of a wild improvement over the last iteration of the iMac. You know, or are they? If if you have one of the Older 20-inch models that use the six-bit dithered display mm-hmm. that looks horrible as when you're not looking at it straight on. You might want to consider going up to one of the 21 and a half-inch models because they now use the eight-bit displays with IPS, so they look great. They look, you know, they should have been using that kind of display before, and you don't have that. Ugly looking display that's in the 20 incher, in the older 20 incher. So if you have that older model and you really can't stand that display anymore, you, know, you might want to consider upgrading to one of the 21 inch, 21 and a half inch display, uh, iMacs. Mm-hmm. Um, now, whether if you have a 24 inch iMac right now, you know, if you have the previous generation, there's no real incentive to upgrade ex- unless you want the bigger screen because I think. With the uh, with the 24 inch iMac of the previous generation, the performance is the same. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's scored the same uh, as the 27 inch that the new 27 inch. So if if maybe you have a white plastic iMac, that would be definitely a, a time to, to upgrade to these to these particular models. And and of course any of the those power PC models that we put out on the ice yes. earlier in this podcast. Uh, yes. let, let me jump back to the the twenty seven inch uh, uh, system for a moment. Mm-hmm. Is that an ideal home entertainment system? Is it something that you could sit down and, and work at if you're a creative professional? Who who's the, the the target audience for that model? Well, when I asked them if it, if they saw this as a viable home entertainment machine, 
And they, this is Apple that you. Yes, this is Apple. This when was I not just some the, guy that you, right, you wandered up on the street. Hey, said, hey you! <laughs> uh, when I asked Apple about, you know, do you are you really pushing this as a home entertainment uh, solution? They kind of said they didn't really say yes, but they, you know they pointed out that um, it, while it's not as big as a thirty-inch TV, you know, it's darn close. Mm-hmm. That it has a uh, mount that you can use to put it on the wall, and that it also has the DisplayPort video in, so you can use a device um, right now without an adapter or a special adapter. You can use any device that has DisplayPort out and plug it into the iMac and use the iMac as a screen, the 27-inch iMac. You don't get this uh, functionality with the 21-and-a-half-inch iMacs. But if you also have a Blu-ray player or a DVD player or some other device, you can get a adapter or a converter box and plug that into the uh, 27-inch iMac and use and then use the iMac as a TV. Now, the thing is, I haven't really seen these adapters or converter boxes available just yet. Um, there was some rumor that Belkin was working on one and that it appeared on their website and then disappeared. Uh, but I haven't yet seen um, one of these devices out yet. But they they say they're they're coming out with them, or Apple says that they've left it up to third parties and that third parties are working on them. Okay, are you uh, are you reviewing the quad core for us? I will review the quad core when it comes in. So, or, or maybe it's yesterday. on our website now. So, yeah, yes, it will come in yesterday. Yes. So. And I'm, you know, and that's where if you really want performance, that's mm-hmm. probably what you want to look at. Okay. So. so we talked a little bit about home entertainment systems there, and in the past that that's been kind of the Mac Minis uh, or one of the Mac Minis uh, uh, functions. And let's turn to the man who uh, who looked at that for us, uh, Dan. Yeah, well, the this this uh, round of Mac Minis was really a, a minor upgrade. The big upgrade was earlier this year, the early right. 2009 Minis. That's when they pretty much gutted the thing and 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 changed every aspect of it: the mm-hmm. processor, the memory, FireWire 800, more USB ports, et cetera, et cetera, and new video card. <clears throat> this one, they took that model. Uh, they bumped the processor speeds a little bit. They used to be two gigahertz for both models. Now it's two two point two six for the 599 model and two point five three gigahertz for the 799 model, uh, they doubled the RAM in both, and that's really the biggest change here, is that the lower-end model has two gigabytes of RAM now, and the, and the higher-end model has four, whereas it was one and two earlier this year. And and as we said in the review of that model, one gigabyte is just too too little to really do anything um, if you're using OS X and, and, and even, you know, Word. Uh, in fact, our our uh, benchmarks didn't even run with one gigabyte of RAM. We had to to do Speedmark 5, we had to upgrade the Mini just to be able to get it to run it. So so that was the biggest change. Um, and then on the lower-end model, they just boosted the hard drive by, I think, 40, 40 gigabytes. So mm-hmm. relatively minor changes at the same price point. So how did these changes end up affecting performance? Well, I think the um, it was around, correct me if I'm wrong, Jimmy, but I think it was around uh, 7 to 17 percent, something like that, in depending on the test. So it was a minor bump. For the, uh, for the listener at home, Jimmy is nodding. Yes, he's nodding. <laughs> yes. Uh, so compared to the one previous, you know, the previous generation earlier this year, just a minor speed bump. Uh, if you're looking at it compared to, say, the 
the last, or I should say, most recent mini update before then, which was like 19, mo- 19, 19 months earlier, I believe. Right. Then you're talking about you know thirty to forty to almost fifty percent better, depending on the test. So it doesn't sound like this is the sort of thing if you if you upgraded earlier this year. Chances are, if you upgraded in earlier this year, you've right. already bumped your RAM up. Right. Uh, and so you're really, you know, unless you're doing something with the mini where every little second, every little processor cycle matters, which in which case you probably wouldn't be using a mini. Uh, this is really not a something you, you're going to rush out and upgrade. But, but for people who have an older mini, an older mini from uh, the, the previous generation, you know, almost two years ago now, actually over two years ago now, uh, it's a big jump up. It's also it still remains a very good computer for people switching to the Mac. Uh, and then also if you just you know, you've got an older Mac, maybe a G4 tower or an old PowerBook or something, and you want to get up into Intel chips as, as cheaply as possible, you know, the, the 599 Mac Mini is the easiest way to do that. And, it, and you're going to get a big, big uh, uh, performance improvement over any kind of non-Intel Mac. There, there was an aspect of your, um, of your review that's now available at Macworld.com that uh, I wanted to talk to you about in terms of um, uh, physically upgrading um, – this current Mac Mini line, uh, whether that's worth it, what you can do, um, particularly as it as it pertains to the the hard drive. I was thinking, yeah, it's you know it, the 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 Mini line has never been easy to upgrade. We did a video uh, the last week or two weeks ago, also available also on MacWorld.com, <clears throat> where uh, we showed the actual entire process. And it, once you've done it a few times, it's not difficult. But that first time you do it, it's 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 kind of intimidating because you feel like you're cracking the the insides in half. So it's not that difficult, but uh, and it's not. I guess I should back up and say it's not as necessary as it used to be because with the older Mac Minis, originally they came with 512 megabytes of RAM, which was crazy bad. And then even earlier this year, like we said earlier, the the lower end model only came with one gigabyte, and so upgrading the RAM at the minimum was something you pretty much had to do. Uh, and Apple's prices in the past haven't been that good, but with these latest models. You you get two gigabytes. It's prices on RAM. We should we right. should Sorry. insist. Yes, thank there. you. Um, but with the latest models, you're getting two gigabytes out of the box or four gigabytes, and so that's not as big of a deal. And Apple will upgrade to four gigabytes on the two gigabyte model for only a hundred dollars. So you know, whether you actually need to do this yourself is it's not so clear anymore. Um, but as you mentioned, the hard drive now that's the, the the biggest drawback these days of the Mac Mini is that it's got a 2.5-inch laptop drive, 5,400 RPM, so it's a really slow performer. And that's in both uh, In both, both models, systems, right. right. And the only difference is, is the size. I think one, the lower end comes with 160 gigabyte. I believe the, the, the 799 model comes with 320 gigabytes. Uh, and so you could go in there and upgrade the, the internal hard drive to a 7,200 RPM drive. But uh, when we did testing on the early 2009 models, it turns out that by buying an external FireWire 800 drive, now that these actually come with FireWire 800 ports, uh, you're going to get performance that's pretty comparable to upgrading the internal drive for, and you get a lot more for your money because it's, you know, you can get an 800 a FireWire 800 um, external drive that holds about a gigabyte, or excuse me, a terabyte of of, uh, of data for around 100, 120, 150 dollars depending on the you know the prices, whereas it would cost you about 100 dollars to get maybe a 320 gigabyte or a 500 gigabyte internal drive. So. The way to go, I think, is get the cheapest menu you can buy and then just buy an extra drive. You know, you lose out on the, the, the space-saving aspect in that way a little bit, but you're going to get a lot more for your money. Well, it's not like hard external hard drives these days are 
taking up city blocks. Size, yeah. They're not huge like Apple yeah. Apple monitors. Yeah, true. Now those are those are giant. JWC still sell the little Mac Mini shaped external hard yeah, drives. Yeah, yeah, and some, some vendors do that. Uh, OWC, like you said, and there's uh, I forgot what the other vendor is, but I've seen a couple where it looks like a little Mac Mini under a Mac Mini, mm-hmm. and it gives you you know. 750 gigabytes or a terabyte of space. And we'll see sells, sells those sure. tiny yeah. tiny mm-hmm. drives. Yeah. Tiny in size, not tiny right. in capacity. Um, let's just go around the table then. Uh, one final question for all you gentlemen. Um, your assessment of this round of Apple hardware updates. Did, did Apple do what it needed to do? Is there anything uh, noticeably missing from the, from the Apple line? I say I ain't Dan Frakes. Waiting, oh. waiting for the inevitable. Uh, you just had to bring the, it up and rub it, salt in the wound. It's it's the it's the MacWorld podcast listener at home game. What can we bait Dan into mentioning? Well, I always talk about a mid range Mac that's you know there we go upgradable uh, <sighs> somewhere between a Mac Pro and a Mac Mini, and and our producer is rolling his eyes in the background, um, but. Uh, I'm, I'm letting go of that dream. I, mm. I, I, it's been slowly slipping away, and I think I'm ready to just put it to rest. But overall, but are you overall? I mean, these were these were minor upgrades. They took what they had and they just made them a little better. This wasn't any major overhaul. I mean, even the the white MacBook is essentially just bringing it up to speed with the rest of the line, and but keeping it in white plastic. Mm-hmm. So it was good upgrades. You know, if you didn't buy a Mac earlier this year, Apple's hoping you're gonna, you know, this will be enough to make you pull the trigger. Roman. Um, I think with the IMAX, if you're not budget-minded, if you can hold off and see what kind of results come from the quad-core IMAX, that might be the way to go because performance-wise, there's not a whole lot to say about the new IMAX. The, you know, it's, it is mostly with the screens. Um, whether, you know, whether that's disappointing or not, eh, I, I don't know. It's just kind of... What's the price on the quad-core model? It's it. Uh, I want to say, oh, it's it's oh, it's, it's well over two thousand dollars. I think it's. Let me look at right here. It's uh, oh, it's nineteen ninety nine. So it's, it is two thousand dollars. It is two thousand. And there is a but not well over. Not well over. <laughs> well, there's actually you can upgrade it. Yeah, you I7. can upgrade it to a Core i seven. I seven. For an additional two hundred dollars, which makes it. Uh, Twenty one ninety nine. Well over two thousand dollars. <laughs> well over by one ninety nine. Are we, Jim? You you can uh, you would know better than most of us. Are we planning on uh, uh, custom ordering a, uh, a core i seven for future testing? We uh, I understand we may be getting one of both. Oh, that uh, would be outstanding. That's something for everyone to look forward to, whether <laughs> whether in this room or or listening out in Radio Land. Uh, Jim, what are what are your thoughts on the uh, well, on the, the recent round of updates? My my two observations, I guess, would be that uh, though at the high end of the IMAX, at least so far from what we've seen, there hasn't been much performance difference. But if you go uh, look at the uh, the entry level model uh, from this year and compare it to the high end model from earlier, um, from the last generation, they're very comparable and much less expensive. So I think that's pretty cool, the fact that, you know, you can now get a low-end uh, iMac and get high-end performance or what was high-end performance just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and then the other thing, I guess, is um, the, with the new unibody MacBook and the removal of FireWire and the addition of the Display Port and those things, I, it, they kind of took one of my favorite Macs 
uh, the old white one that still had FireWire in it and, and replaced it and brought it up to speed or down to speed, however you'd like to characterize that. So, I And I, I assume from the, the, the note of sadness in your voice that I, I kind of miss the old one. You're missing the, the FireWire 800. Any kind of FireWire. Mm. Give me some FireWire. Okay. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank uh, you, Jim, and you, Roman, and you, Dan, for uh, joining us this afternoon uh, to talk Apple hardware. And I'd like to show my gratitude with this, uh, this word from our sponsor. Friends, are you searching for answers? Well, we can't help you with the, the, the questions that plague your daily life, but we can help you track down the, the questions that uh, plague you about Macs uh, via the, the wonderful world of Macworld Super Guides. We have volumes dealing with Snow Leopard. We have a new Mac Basics guide geared specifically for Snow Leopard and, and just in time for the holidays, our own digital photo super guide for getting the most out of those, those holiday snapshots and making all your relatives look, uh, look photogenic. So go to macworld.com slash super guides to get all the details, including pricing. All the answers await you at macworld.com slash super guides. We're back here on the Macworld podcast after that sponsorship message. Beautifully read. Yes, bravo. Right. As great, great script too on the um, on the sponsorship message. Um, I'm joined now by now that we've cleared the riffraff out of the room by editorial director Jason Snell. Hello, Jason. Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me, and I'm glad that you got rid of uh, Frakes, especially because he he creeps me out when we're recording a yeah, podcast. He's, well, he's got the crazy eyes. That's <laughs> that's right. I think he was wearing a snuggie. Really? It's very strange. And it's very he's unprofessional. A, either, that or he's a, either that or he's a Jedi. I'm mm. very confused. Maybe it was a slanket. It could be. It could have been a slanket. I'm unclear on the difference. At any rate, um, iPhone app rejections have been in the news lately. Yeah, there have been a few, haven't there? Yes. And, and in fact, uh, I dare say that maybe one has hit rather close to home for you. As you can read on Macworld.com, um, I would recap a little bit about what happened to me – the last couple of weeks, as many readers may know, Macworld has been dipping its toe in the water of the um, the App Store for the iPhone and iPod Touch. We have two apps, uh, one of which is an actual functional app called App Gems, and the other one is a book as an app, and that's a version of the um, I think aforementioned iPhone Super Guide. One of our Super Guide uh, books has been made as an app, and um, you know. As, a, as somebody who covers the App Store, um, we talk to developers all the time. We hear complaints about developers or from developers about Apple's rejection policies in the App Store, uh, how uh, really frustrating it is to get your software into the App Store. And quite honestly, when uh, we first got into the App Store with our first app, I had a lot of developers say, aha, now you're going to know for yourself what we've been talking about all along. And I said, oh, yes. <laughs> and uh, that's actually been uh, quite true. Nothing more true than when we submitted our iPhone book um, to Apple and had it rejected initially for a technical problem that we couldn't actually find and I don't believe existed. But then rapidly it escalated into a series of increasingly confusing and frustrating back and forths with Apple about a, uh, an app rejection policy that um, then they suddenly apologized for and, and cleared our app. But it was one of those moments of deep frustration where we felt like um, there were no clear rules. 
about what was allowed and what was not in the App Store. And I think from that, I, 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 I suddenly understood why so many developers express so much frustration with the App Store approval process. It's that there isn't really a map of uh, what to do and what not to do. There are some guidelines you can follow, but sometimes you think you're following the guidelines and Apple says, no, you can't do that. And other times there are kind of these cultural shared stories of, well, you know, you're going to get rejected if you do that, but it's not actually written anywhere. And it it is a supremely frustrating process. Now, is there a chance uh, to talk to an actual human being when you you get these rejections? Or is it it like, is it a letter that you've got to, to interpret the, the cryptic runes and the, 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 the chicken bones have been spilled out on the floor and you've got to figure out what, what it all means? Well, it's a little bit of both. I, mm-hmm. I think that there's a misconception that what happens is there's just a big red rejection notice and then you're done and you've got to figure out what's wrong. And, and sometimes that's the case. They, they are very much um, – they're supposed to be responsive. And in fact, when I was called – by my um, by somebody at Apple, some random person at Apple who I'd never heard of before, who read me complaining on Twitter about this rejection and said it's all a big misunderstanding. Um, one of the things he told me that actually really uh, fueled my ire was uh, that he said, uh, "You know, you can reply to your rejection, and we do listen to those emails." And I just started to laugh, and I said, "Friend, we did reply repeatedly, and every time we we." Uh, responded to the person on the other end of the of the email chain, uh, we had an we had an extra um, complication or explanation. We were never able to go through that process. So there is a back and forth, and I think maybe some developers don't realize that, and maybe some regular people don't know that. You can reply when Apple rejects your app and say, "We need some help here. We need some guidance. What about this? What about that?" I've heard conflicting stories about whether it um, does anything. Whether some people get a response back and other people get nothing and they feel like they aren't being listened to. Uh, In our case, we did get responses back. They were inconsistent and unsatisfying. We ended up in a position where we were going to sell a book about the iPhone on the iPhone and not be able to mention the iPhone or show the iPhone or show the word iPhone in any context, which would be, I think, the the standard joke that we told was it will be Macworld Super Guide for the product that you are holding in your hand right now. That rolls off the tongue. Yes, exactly. A product, the product that we that we cannot mention its name. We dare not say its name. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, our story was uh, from this new guy who called me because I complained in public. Was that for content, specifically for books, that they, Apple would approve any book title and book cover as an icon for a book? They, that was a, a policy they um, they had that nobody really seemed to have known about, and that the person who rejected our app seemed to not. No, either, um, which I think struck struck me as being a, a sign that perhaps Apple's um, organizational structure for app approval is still a work in progress, to say the least. That that it's not that they don't have the right to to block apps. It's that if we submit a book to the uh, to the App Store, why is the person who's um, rejecting our app completely unaware of Apple's policies about books on the App Store? That's the part that that really struck me. Now, um, and maybe you have a sense of this having dealt with it firsthand, how, how much of this uh, do you think is Apple sets up the system in, in 2008 uh, right before right before it, it makes it possible to put apps right. on the thing? In a very short period of in time. In a very short period of time and not – maybe not really – maybe being taken by surprise at what kind of um, – 
what kind of uh, response they got from developer community. I think that's true. That maybe they were thinking, well, there'll be a couple of there'll, there'll be a, a bunch of developers, but nothing that we we can't handle. And then. Obviously, we we can see the raw numbers of apps that are going on onto the store. Yep, seventeen months yeah. we've seventeen months we've uh, had the app store live, so mm-hmm. it's been a very short amount of time. And it's true, any criticism criticism of Apple, I believe, does have to be tempered with the fact that I think this took them by surprise. Mm-hmm. I think they're ba- they in order to get this to happen at all, they based it on their existing iTunes infrastructure, which is not necessarily the best system for software purchases, but they had it, so they used it. Mm -hmm. And I think that they've built this system up um, as best they could to a certain degree. The problem is that Apple has this thing in their personality, uh, in the corporate personality, of wanting to be a black box, not wanting to explain itself, not wanting to um, admit that there are things that aren't working quite right. Um, And I think that that's been a – that exacerbates the situation. I think if Apple came out and said um, more often – and we've heard occasionally – Phil Schiller posted a a comment um, relayed through uh, John Gruber's Daring Fireball blog. This was back during the whole Ninja World Ninja Words, right, back in August when there was a dictionary that was rejected for having bad words in it um, that you couldn't even find unless you were looking for them, ironically. and they said we're learning, and you know there are going to be some errors. I think the problem is that everybody's frustrated, thinks Apple maybe not, maybe isn't moving fast enough, and it may be that Apple's actually doing a lot behind the scenes, but they're not going to talk about it. The company is simply not; that's not what they do. So that that feeds the frustration because you don't know whether Apple thinks everything is fine, um, or whether Apple knows that things aren't fine and is working on it, but doesn't want to tell you that it's working on it. But in the end, what you end up with is these kind of crazy rejections. That um, again, it's not just the developers are frustrated, although that's part of it. And we've seen some major developers say, "I'm not going to develop for the iPhone." I, anymore. I was going to jump in there and, and bring up the the case of Rogue Amoeba, which um, right, Rogue Amoeba um, had a frustration where they had a, a rejection, and their their app was rejected because it displayed um, their their product um, streams audio from a Mac. And you run their software on the Mac and then it streams that audio to your iPhone. The iPhone app displays the icon of what Mac model it is. So you can tell, is this coming from my iMac or my laptop? And that is streamed over from the Mac. It's part of the Mac OS's um, interfaces. It is not stored on the iPhone, but Apple rejected it for using um, for using the Apple trademarks and images of Apple products. Well, first off, the result is a product that is much worse to use because you can't actually see what at what Mac you're connected to. But they weren't; um, those graphics weren't resident on the iPhone. They're being streamed from the Mac using Apple's uh, official uh, interfaces for doing so on the Mac side. So very frustrating and inconsistent. I think that's one of the issues here. Where, where it hits where it hits the consumer is in a couple of ways. One is. If developers who are very talented start leaving the platform, the platform will be poorer off and some other platform potentially could also be strengthened. So that, that's, a, that's a, a, big, a big part of this is just that you end up with potentially a brain drain in the platform. We see that with the droid uh, commercials. One of the items in Verizon's um, droid commercial is I don't allow open software development. Well, as far as I'm concerned, what they're really talking about there is these rejections. And, and that's the thing about Apple trying to improve this. I think these rejections give Apple a black eye. It's a little or, or a little bit of a, a nudge. Every time that something like this happens, it's some bad press for Apple. And that's the thing that surprises me about this is that Apple 
doesn't seem to be addressing this problem systemically for as 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 much as we can tell. For every you know every couple of weeks, you get one of these. Um, there was ours. There was the rogue amoeba story, and that was a, an app of ultimately approved because. Because as John Welch, who sometimes uh, contributes for us, would point out, the majority of apps do get approved. And I think that it's important to say that. But the problem is some of those approvals are only after a ridiculous back and forth with Apple. And we don't even know what happens there unless somebody like Paul Cafasis at Rogue Amoeba writes about it. So then you get that one and that's a black eye for Apple. And then there was this um, the political bobblehead directory where an artist from Mad Magazine did caricatures of every member of the House and the Senate. And that was rejected for uh, political misuse or misuse of public figures or mm-hmm. something ridiculous. It was a nonpartisan thing. It was equ- an equal opportunity offender, if you were, of public figures. And yet that was rejected. And then the rejection was reversed and it was approved. And, and, and each one of these is a little bit of a knock – on Apple and it starts to permeate into the popular culture. It's in that Verizon ad. It's in the webcomic XKCD, which is uh, popular with geeky people on the internet. But there was a joke um, last week where the punchline was an Apple app rejection. It, the, and, and eventually that will have some harm, I think, on uh, the iPhone as a platform, especially if you combine it with talented people like Paul Kafasis or Joe Hewitt who wrote the Facebook app saying, I give up. I'm not going to develop for the iPhone anymore. And that's why users should should care about developers belly aching is that it, it, it will weaken the platform. And if you're somebody who loves your iPhone and you want to have good software on your iPhone, um, you know, Apple's rejection process will make that a, uh, a, a weaker proposition in the future potentially since, since you already asked the question that i was was going to ask and well, what do you think that well no 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 <laughs> uh, well the why is this any skin off of my nose right. seems to be um uh, oftentimes the reaction to when when these stories come out yeah um, absolutely and, and it's true you know if you're not a developer we have some posters in our forums who who are very vociferous about saying you know developers are belly aching about this, but I like the fact that Apple is protecting me. And the fact is, there there is an extreme argument here, which is that Apple should just let everything through. But I think there's well, a lot of a lot of gray in there about Apple being forthright in what the rules are, and potentially an Apple allowing um, allowing people to bypass the store if they so choose. Because the fact is, most major developers, even if Joe Hewitt of Facebook thinks that Apple shouldn't be a gatekeeper at all, the reality is, if Facebook had the ability to release an app without going through the App Store. Um, without any approvals required or go through the App Store and be in Apple's sanctioned store, of course Facebook's want to go through, going to want to go through the approval process. So, so it's not about that, I think, so much as it is about um, having consistency mm-hmm. and knowing what the rules are. And Because if you're a developer and you're investing a lot of time and money into building an app and then it turns out that Apple just isn't going to let you develop it, you've thrown your money away – makes it a lot harder for other developers to then invest their money in it. Is there any chance um, sort of dovetailing off that that um, that uh, statement of yours? Is there any chance Apple throws up its hands and says, fine, we're not uh, we're not uh, gonna be the gatekeeper anymore or do they do they do you see them uh, continuing to to Strive for some degree of control. I think where we're headed is probably a two-tier approach, but I don't know what the tiers are. I think that it's possible Apple could say we're adding the ability for you to sideload apps onto your iPhone. You can go out there on the web and download something and install it and it will work and good luck with that. You take all the risk. I think maybe it's more likely that what Apple will do is have sort of a 
a second tier that's a, a higher tier in the iTunes store where developers pay more money um, for better support. They sign uh, maybe uh, more strict but also clearer guidelines and there's some level of an honor system which says we trust you. We think that you guys know what you're doing. You've signed our contracts. We're going to let everything you do just pass into the store automatically and unless somebody complains and it turns out you broke the rules, we're just going to let you do it. That would that kind of tier, which is not a free-for-all in anarchy, but rather saying we trust a certain class of developers. We're going to let them do – we know they're not going to break our rules. We, we can trust them. There's a good relationship there. Um, that would solve a lot of these problems because if you're somebody who's released five iPhone apps and you've always played by the rules and then you've got a, an issue and you want to you release an update – um, why, did, why does that person have to wait two weeks or why does one of these comic book um, reader apps have to submit every single comic page of every single comic book they want to sell to review by somebody from iTunes? Why is, why is Apple reviewing that? And if, the, if a theoretical um, tablet, let's say, from Apple were to come out and reading were to be a part of that. Allegedly. Allegedly, yes, the imaginary tablet. If the imaginary tablet – had reading as one of its features, is Apple going to approve every book that's published like they're approving, approving every comic book that's on the iPhone right now? They're, it, it just There obviously need to be ways that this gets addressed and Apple just hasn't talked about it. So I think that's the frustration really is is, uh, is Apple going to drive people away through its own secrecy about what's it, what it wants to do with the platform? Well, that that sounds like a, a wonderful way to wrap up. What's your beef? Um, I'm sure if our readers have beefs with this or anything else that they can – They will let us know. They of will let us know will. and there's a lovely comments thread. Uh, attached to the podcast you're now to listening to. podcast you're now listening to, the, the show notes. So feel free to let us know what you think about this issue or, uh, or phone in and sound off. Um, there's usually a phone number that – People can call. I don't have it in front yes, of me. Yes, Chris Breen. Call Chris Breen. Call Chris Breen at home. Chris Breen is off today, by the way. Yes. He's on vacation. Yes. And uh, we we can't wait for him to get back. Yes, come back, Chris. <laughs> we miss you. Uh, I'd like to thank Jason Snell for, for joining us. I'd like to thank the listeners for joining us. This has been the Macworld Podcast. I'm Philip Michaels. And uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>